Hello and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. For some of us our years at secondary school are the best of our lives. For more of us, it's probably a mixed bag. And for everyone, it's a time of huge change in which we go from being seen as a child to being an adult in almost every sense. For an increasing number of pupils though, these years will be some of the most challenging they face and where mental health issues will become parts of their lives for a long while to come. As a society, it can feel like we've come a long way in taking children and mental health seriously. But it isn't easy to get to grips with the scale of this issue because the people facing it are at a double disadvantage. There's still stigma around mental ill health and dismissiveness towards young people. What we do know is that the number of young people in the UK experiencing mental ill health stands at one in six and has risen sharply in recent years. Professor Jess Dayton at UCL's Evidence-Based Practice Unit and the Anna Freud Centre was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund to take the temperature of the mental health of children and young people in the UK and to test new ways to improve their mental well-being. Through the Head Start project, she ran a national survey of their experiences with questions shaped by young people themselves and she has worked with councils across England to put what she found into practice. I spoke with Jess and two people from Newham in London, one of those local areas. Sarah Reeves, a children and young people's mental health and well-being lead, and Libby, a young person growing up in the borough. Welcome Jess, Sarah and Libby. I wanted to start by asking you, Sarah, you work as um, a youth participation practitioner, um, co-production lead, you have had a lot of experience of working with young people and children and I wanted you to just tell me a little bit about your experiences over the years of where children's mental health support was at, especially prior to the Head Start work and recent developments. What did that mental health and wellbeing support mean in schools, in services that you came into contact with? The main mental health support that everybody would think of would have been CAMS and actually um, I worked in a different borough before this job, and but a neighbouring borough, and it would have actually that would have been the only support. Um, and I think people generally saw um, mental health support as that very clinical counselling or professional services in that way, you know, through the NHS or through CAMS or something like that. In schools, again. Um, it was down to sort of counselling services like, you know, Place to Be, um, who do offer those like counselling sessions for young people. Um, and so very much the view was of mental health support. It was that looking from a very medical and clinical perspective rather than looking at it from more of a social model. Um and looking at actually the power of informal education to actually help um, address some issues and address that system change, really. Could you just explain what you mean by a social model there? Yeah, so <clears throat> looking more at the factors around a young person, so looking at that whole system approach, reflecting upon actually how the system around that young person impacts on their mental health. 
but also um, seeing less clinical or medical interventions as also in a therapeutic way. Um, I definitely feel like that's been missing from a lot of mental health support, um, pre-stuff like Head Start and um, those sorts of programmes. So, Yeah. Thinking back, was there anything about the way that um, that support was provided that, you know, felt puzzling to you, frustrating? I think you've hinted at it there, but... Yeah, no, my professional life um, in this field sort of started off when I was maybe 24, so that's quite a while ago, I'm not going to reveal too much. Um, <laughs> but so I, you know, I've always been a kind of community youth worker. Um, and I think within that role, as a practitioner, as a youth worker, you understand the benefits, you see the impact on young people, you see the development of young people. And you do actually, a lot of the time when you are supporting individuals, you are supporting them with their mental health. I think the frustration for me back then was that actually it's not recognised. It's seen as the pink shrimps and playing pool um, model of supporting young people. Um, I'm sorry, the what? The oh, pink... sorry. I've had, it, I've had it described as pink shrimps and playing pool. So, or t- <laughs> pink shrimps and table tennis. So like young people come to a centre, you fill them up with sugar, oh. you fill them up with sweets, they play some games and it kind of distracts them. Yeah, and I think for me, that's what was frustrating. Um, and as, on a very, on a personal level, I mean, I, I have a history of mental health difficulties myself. So growing up in a system where, you know, actually the only solution that is ever offered to you is go and see a counsellor, go and see a psychologist is not always helpful. And Libby, I want to turn to you now because I want to ask you, Libby, about your own observations about the transition from child to young person to adults, and particularly that thing about going from primary to secondary school, and particularly the challenges of going through secondary school and that well-being, that mental health, not just in the kind of narrow sense of those words, but in the way that Sarah just described about the way it affects everybody's sense of who they are. So I think the move from primary to secondary is especially hard because you're probably like, what, 11, 12, no, 10, 11, going into this massive kind of building of hierarchy. So it's always teachers and then it's year 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, and then you're right at the bottom yet again. It brings a lot of stress and anxiety onto it, knowing, oh my God, am I going to make any friends or is the work's going to be really hard or what am I going to have to do? What if I get a detention or a sanction? So I think it brings a lot of anxiety into young people. And that transition for me, especially, I found it quite difficult because I went to a school completely out of my borough and no one else was going there. And I did feel very overwhelmed. Um, I used to always cry the mornings before school. Um, not as a, oh my God, I don't want to go. Like not in a in a typical quote unquote bratty way, but in a, a genuine, I don't want to go back to that place. Um, and I feel like we young people aren't exactly helped in terms of school. There's not enough guidance in place. So when a student is feeling anxious about it, they do brush it off and say most of the time, oh, okay but everyone goes through it and it's going to be fine soon. Um, but yeah, I think that's mm. it. Yeah. yeah. And is there anything specific 
to girls experience about that journey do you think so not many people do think it's not real but they brush upon it a lot um because they just make up the excuses and especially the boys actually they say it a lot they're like okay you're just stressed because of exams they don't understand that people especially women who have already had such a strong history in the world of being um, neglected and segregated and abused emotionally um, and physically yeah it is very much always kind of pushed onto oh my god are you on your period or no you're just a bit upset because you're it's that time of the month but they don't understand that women are going through things like depression and anxiety and that it's not spoken about enough and when we do speak about it it's always um they always go straight to the opposite side of the spectrum so it's always like men have it as well but they're not understanding that we're not saying that men don't have mental health issues we just want some help with ours right now thank you for a really honest answer there uh Libby. and um so jess why did you want to do this research bringing you in Thank you. Um, yeah, that's really powerful, Libby. And I think some some of that sort of uh, probably makes the case for why this research is important. Um, I think for me, my interest in mental health and well-being kind of predated my interest in research, really, because I think when I went to school, I remember lot lots of people my age actually really struggling and and really clutching at straws to get any support within schools and thinking. You know, mental health and well-being is just so fundamental, isn't it, to who we are and how we function that surely that's a core place to start if you're going to, you know, support people to you know, get the most out of life, really. So I think that's where my general interest comes from. The research quite often that the headlines tend to be around what we can see at a population level. So, you know, you'll get you'll get statistics about one in what's the post COVID is one in six children, young people experiencing probable mental disorder, I think is how they frame it. Um, and that's obviously really important to know because we can keep an eye on the fact that those rates increase. Um, but I think some of that experience of different groups gets masked by those very broad figures. In terms of Head Start more generally, my role is very much on the evaluation side and it's really Newham and the other partnerships that do the brilliant work putting the support in and I just try and sort of help understand whether that's working. But 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 being that evaluation also gave us a brilliant opportunity to collect really large scale data from children and people to hopefully amplify their voices around what they were finding challenging. And obviously from that we could see that girls and young women were really saying actually their mental health is really being challenged and really being undermined so that felt like an important message and when we look at the research that's out there um that's there to be seen actually but but for whatever reason i think it's a bit like what libby was saying it it doesn't really it gets dismissed and doesn't really get paid attention to so it felt really important for this specific piece to to draw more attention to that mm. Yeah, and, and what you're talking about requires a massive, was a massive research project. It was, it's gathering a lot of information from a, a, right across the country, really, ultimately. Um, and how do you go about doing such a huge survey in order to answer those questions? And they are about difficult, quote unquote, difficult things, aren't they? those questions too. We were really lucky at the beginning of this project to be able to have a period of time to work with all the different partnerships like Newham who were involved in Head Start to think about 
you know, if this is a program that's going to be embedded, what are we really trying to change? What do we really want to see for children and young people? And, and to talk to the schools and to the young people themselves about what was important to them. So, so that was where we started from. And we really let that drive the content of the survey. And then as researchers, we then said, OK, where does the research evidence say the best measures are of those kinds of things, of well-being, of mental health, of you know, how connected young people feel to school, what, you know, how are the support do they feel by their family, by their friends and so on. Um, and so we used that as a basis to build the survey. And then really it was about a partnership between researchers, young people, um, the partnerships themselves and the schools to really embed this because it takes significant effort really on the side of the schools and the local authorities more than it does us by that point. So. Um, they did brilliant work sort of emphasising why this was important and I hope we honoured that by also feeding back to the schools what we'd learnt and, and some kind of sense for them of what the strengths and needs of their students were so that they could use that to plan the kind of support they put in place as well. So it's about trying to make something reciprocal and mutually useful that everybody gets to have a say in, I suppose. And Sarah... And actually, Libby as well, um, that reciprocity. I mean, Jessica's described there how, you know, it started with a conversation which was about defining, like really establishing what what young people feel about this uh, and what schools feel about this and what would be useful to them. And also, the, these were very time-consuming things to do, both that first phase, but then also going out and, and actually doing the survey, doing, gathering in the information, the data, the evidence about this. So why was it important to do it that way if it is time consuming? Why is it worth doing in that way? You know, it's really important to actually gain an understanding of where people are at and starting where they're at. Without that mutual respect and understanding, um, those journeys that you're gonna be taking together are really, they're really, they're quite hard and quite challenging. Those relationships need to be built and they get built through mutual understanding and trust and you know, that relational approach is vitally important because like for schools, you are, you know, you're kind of looking at their practice, you know, for them to trust you to do that in a way that um, is supportive and useful and helpful, you know, that needs to come from a place of trust. You know, we've, we have had experiences where throughout the programme where a school didn't feel like that. Um, and they felt that they were being attacked and it it destroys the whole relationship, you know. This is a programme that is about, you know, young people and putting them at the centre, um, but working holistically, you know, in the systems around them as well. So um, who better to speak about the experience of a young person than a young person? Well, that's a perfect segue into Libby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, <Yeah>. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Libby, that's a really important point that do you think that our assumptions made about young people and their their well-being, their, their mental health in particular, and what quote unquote is normal in growing up? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about the assumptions because a lot of the assumptions come with age. It's always if you're under like what ten, you're you're not supposed to, or you're just being dramatic, and you're just probably just a bit angry that the biscuits ran out or something. Um, <laughs> but I think people don't see that 
there are also childhood, there's childhood trauma that exists um, and that can start from a very, very young age. And then there's also assumptions regarding women as well and the mental health, like I said before about the whole periods thing that um, if someone, if a woman is going through something, it's automatically linked to hormones. I've got to say it's, I'm slightly sand on a personal level to be honest um listening to you talk Libby because I I recognize so well exactly what you describe about your journey from primary school to secondary school I had that experience of you know crying before school and and, and just generally having quite a, a rough ride of it and um and I remember people being very dismissive not just of my feelings but of of children in general and young people as we got older so I've been sitting here thinking gosh yeah I really really recognize that I I keep on telling myself I'm sure it's better now and it's sad to hear that it's not necessarily Libby but Jess I'm aware as a researcher myself of how much I am bringing myself into this. You know, as soon as I start talking about growing up, I think about my own experiences growing up. And presumably, you grew up as well, Jess. You two. <laughs> I hate Or to some degree, enough to now be now be um, researching growing up. At least you grew up that much. So. Um, there's a serious point there, isn't there, about how you approach a, a subject which you do have direct experience of and you possibly have quite strong feelings about. You know, as a researcher, how does that work? How did you work with that? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And and in a way, listening to Libby talk there, like, like you were saying, Rosie, it, it's, it brings it home in ways that sometimes the large numbers and the large quantitative data sets don't. So I think it's times like this, really, where it feels sometimes nearest the surface. But yeah, I, I think um, we're getting better as, as researchers, I hope, at, at owning that and using it as a strength and not something that we try and partition away. I, I can really identify with some of the things that you're saying, Libby, about you know, that sort of feeling of being trivialised in terms of your own experience and how that doesn't help you to manage, actually, does it? And, um, and I can really identify with that. And also, I think I can see some of the findings some of the explanations that emerge from the literature around why the experience of young women might be particularly challenging and sometimes they're over you know really oversimplified and I can think of lots of different explanations that I can possibly draw from my own experience I can remember times when uh, particularly in secondary school I really felt the pressure to meet the mark on too many things that felt like ridiculously big expectations and I think often girls and young women will just try and meet those expectations because they assume you know cope whatever the cost sort of thing and so I think being able to draw on that lived experience really helps you to question contextualize identify but I suppose also recognize that you know you, you can't generalize your experience to everyone else's experience and there are different stories and well let's talk about some of those stories that emerged from your research then um what would you say were the big themes that came out and did any of them surprise you yeah so obviously the one we're we're talking about most is is sort of the experience of girls and young women and how the um the distinction between that experience for girls and young women versus boys and young men was quite different. And in some ways that wasn't surprising because as I said, it was, it was in the research already, but I think that that 
that gap is getting bigger and starker in the research we can see that so it's not just not just in terms of in recent years but also as girls and young women move through adolescence we can see where that gap starts and it is you know at the beginning of secondary school we can see those things you know girls and boys start to depart in terms of their experience of mental health and so it wasn't absolutely a surprise but it it was I think that was the point at which I absorbed fully the extent of that and that felt quite surprising. I think some of the qualitative research that we've carried out as well which we've talked about a bit less I think that comes as more of a surprise to me because that's where you can really get a sense of what's potentially driving some of these factors but also you, you know the the remarkable resilience of young people who have quite challenging life experiences actually being able to show that direct relationship really between what support is available in your immediate environment and how you are then able to manage the challenges that life throws at you I think that feels like a really important thing to do not just to state that there's a relationship there but to be able to describe that in someone's own words um, that's been really powerful I think just backtracking slightly could you go into a little bit more detail about those different patterns between girls and young women and boys and young men and and the uh, journey through secondary school in particular could you just explain the details of that a little bit we started carrying out those surveys with a group when they were in year seven and we followed them through each academic year to year 11 um so when when we looked at their responses we looked at their reports of their emotional difficulties so in terms of feelings of anxiety or low mood for example in terms of behavioral difficulties so how much they sort of got angry lashed out and there were and, and also general sort of well-being so how positive they felt about their life and um yeah the satisfaction they derived from it i suppose and what we found was that in the first year so when the young people were aged sort of 11 11 ish 12 there were definitely differences and we could see gender differences between boys and girls that looked a bit like the way we describe them in the research is girls tend to be socialized to respond to psychological distress in a more emotional way so they tend to what we call internalize those uh, that distress whereas boys tend to be socialized more to externalize it so show it as sort of behavioral difficulties and we definitely can see that difference in the data but it's sort of smallish i suppose that first year of data collection and then as young people moved further into adolescence, we saw that girls' emotional difficulties actually began to escalate quite a bit. And, and boys, there stayed very stable over time. And again, the same was true for behaviour. So although boys started out with higher scores, they stayed quite stable over time, whereas the girls started lower, but actually their rates of what, what they saw as their behavioural difficulties began to creep up as time went on. And and correspondingly, their well-being took a dip over that period of time. And again, boys stayed very similar. Now, I think we have to bear in mind that it may be that boys are less willing to report mental health problems. And there's, there's something about that. But I think reflecting on Libby's point from before, we have to be careful not to dismiss the experience of girls and young women in that. So if they're saying that things get worse as they go into adolescence, I think we have to we have to take them at face value on that and believe them. Um, yeah, so that's what the data was really showing us. And in fact, when you look at other data sources, you know, you could almost track that. And when you get to sort of young adulthood, so between 16 and 19, that gap is really, really quite big, actually, between young women and young men. Um, you see really quite high rates of emotional difficulties, 
you know, edging up to about a quarter of young women experiencing significant mental health problems by that age. Gosh. Mm. Libby, um, how does it feel to hear Jess, a researcher who's done this work, describe that those findings? Yeah, um, it actually makes me feel a little bit relieved in a way that um, <laughs> there are some people out there who do understand where us young people are coming from when we do talk about it. Um, and it's also quite shocked me a little bit as well that um, boys started off quite higher than girls because again I think it's stereotypical that men don't have the mental health issues and women do so it's quite surprising and eye-opening in a way to hear that um, they've started the stats in a way have were higher for boys initially than girls and I think it's definitely going to help me understand and be a bit more understandable and gentle in approaches to talking to young people as well, younger people, because I currently have a placement at my primary school where I work with about 11 year olds. Um, so it will make me understand that just because this boy right here is laughing and is having fun with his friends and is being quite quote unquote boisterous, um, he could probably be going through some things as well that he's hiding. Jess, when you have findings like this in a project that show such a clear and probably uh, at least to some degree an unmet need how do you act on that as a researcher yeah it's a good question because as researchers we sometimes feel it's a bit tricky to know how we can we're not the clinicians right or, or you know so we're not always in the best position to take action but i think there are definitely steps we can take um i think the first one is really raising awareness because um as i say even when these things are in plain sight they can often somehow manage to go under the radar and that can sound a bit sort of passive but actually because we have these lovely mechanisms through the head start project where we have such strong relationships with our colleagues in newham and other other partnerships um we've got you know a really powerful funder behind this in the national lottery community fund who are really invested in amplifying the voices of young people who can help us with that um, and we have a sort of direct line into the schools as well to alert them to the, to the needs of their students so we're in good relationships with those who can you know really act on these data these findings and say well here's where we place our support then we and I think we can also try to say well our next job then is to understand why this happens and can we bring to light some explanations of of why this is the experience of girls and young women and bringing young women's voices to the fore is really important in that so I think that's why these kind of conversations but also qualitative research is really important um and then obviously we we can play a role in finding what works there's still a lot of gaps in the evidence base around what good support looks like for mental health and it's our job to make sure we do better at understanding that not assume that our job stops at writing the research paper which i know many of us most of us don't think that's where our job stops now <laughs> but yeah <laughs> so sarah in newham what has all that looked like then uh you know knowing something needs improving and then knowing how best to change it can be different things so so how did you decide on what to do i mean i you know i would love to say it's all fixed um <laughs> i don't think that's true actually um <laughs> it's all fixed everyone's okay no um jess you can go home 
Yes, exactly. It's our point. Having those just, you know, those conversations, it's like, you know, that transition age especially um, has been a massive focus for us over the last couple of years. Um, Lots of young people um, through some of our school programmes kind of identified that being a massive gap within school, within education generally, you know, been working with schools around, you know, developing their strategies around transition, um, working with young people to develop peer-to-peer resources so that schools can then deliver those projects more effectively. Um, And, you know, obviously as a (laughs) co-production lead, I would be very remiss not to, you know, obviously champion actually the fact that you know, having those young people, having those young people involved in the co-design and the co-development of um, those spaces, but also those resources, has really been key for us. Um, really working with the schools to understand what their needs are, um, and understand where their where their knowledge or capacity might um, be an issue, and stepping into that space as well being prepared to step into that space to increase their capacity to offer that kind of support. It's interesting because, you know, we're now six years down the line um, and I've been with Head Start since year one and it's been amazing to see the stance change in some of those schools um, and them taking more and more ownership as the year gets on, kind of developing more confidence in not having to be a clinician, not having to have a psychology degree, that actually, you know, even the small things that you do, let alone these sort of bespoke programmes around targeted groups of young people, you know, they make a difference. Um, It seems like a good moment to start thinking about looking ahead, actually. Let's end on an optimistic note. If you could change one thing, big or small, to improve young people's and if you want, girls in particular, their mental health, what would that be? What would that one thing be? So for me, it would it alludes back to, I think what Sarah was saying when she was describing some of the support that's now in schools. It's, it's about getting the message across to every single person who has contact with young people that they all hold responsibility for supporting those young people's well-being and mental health. So not, not just... Often we think it's the, you know, child mental health services that hold the expertise and therefore they must be the people who support young people's mental health. But actually, what the research tells us is you need lots of protective factors peppered throughout your environment. um, And the more, the better. So the more people who can be a positive force for good in a young person's life, the better. And if that's on a very trivial level, that when you walk past a bunch of teenagers on the road, you don't go, you actually smile. (laughs) Or if it's having a meaningful conversation as a school teacher who doesn't feel qualified as a mental health professional, but does really care about a young person in their class and is a bit worried that something might not quite be right. Or a parent who doesn't know how to tackle the topic of mental health, but is worried about their child. Yeah, all of that. I think if we could empower those people to think of themselves as a potential support, that, that would be a really good service. It would be a start. Sarah, Libby? I don't know. It's a big one. 
it is. I mean, it's quite a mean question. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> I mean, do you know what? I think especially for young women, I think what I hear a lot is a sense of guilt about not being in the right, in a good place, or a sense of shame about not being in a good place. Like like they're letting somebody down. Obviously, I would rather it not happen at all. I'd rather you be in a good place all of your life. But, you know, not to feel that sense of responsibility and guilt about just feeling and being human. No, I I, yeah. I think I think it might even have been Libby who originally brought up this idea of having to be perfect is part of becoming a woman um, in a way, in a, in a really unhealthy way. Obviously not not in a that's not natural that's something that our society does to us but um but how that has an impact on on how you approach things and how other people approach you going through things so uh, libby any any final thoughts um so i when you asked the question my mind went straight back to the past i don't know if it's the history geek in me um <laughs> talking but i think if it was something that I wish didn't happen, not for the sense of like economics and stuff, but um, it would genuinely be war and politics. Because without war, I think that stigmatism vine would have been snapped before it could grow. So the there would have been issues to d- today, yes, without war, probably 100%, but it wouldn't have been as detrimental because then mental health issues wouldn't have been passed down just by childhood trauma. Well, obviously, we live in a world it is not free from war as we speak. So that's a a message which has got plenty of resonance for the world we live in. It's not just a history lesson, I think. But anyway, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to all of you. So thank you for being so generous with your time and your experiences. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to Professor Kate Jones of the Centre for Biodiversity and Environmental Research about how her work into how diseases jump between species has shone a light on the link between the health of humans and the health of the planet. If you can't wait until then, and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Libby and Sarah Reeves from Newham Head Start, and Professor Jess Dayton, our guests, and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.